This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the first Sunday in Advent. This is from the John Nicholas Linker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is Romans 13, beginning at verse 11. And this, knowing the season, that already it is time for you to awake out of sleep, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk becomingly, as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and jealousy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. This is our text. This epistle lesson treats not of faith, but of its fruits or works. It teaches how a Christian should conduct himself outwardly in his relations to other men upon earth, but how we should walk in the Spirit before God comes under the head of faith. Of faith, Paul treats comprehensively and in apostolic manner in the chapters preceding this text. A close consideration of our passage shows it is not didactic, rather it is meant to incite to exhort, urge, and arouse souls already aware of their duty. Paul in Romans 12 devotes the office of the ministry to two things, doctrine and exhortation. The doctrinal part consists in preaching truths not generally known, in instructing and enlightening the people. Exhortation is inciting and urging to duties already well understood. Necessarily, both obligations claim the attention of the minister, and hence Paul takes up both. For the sake of effect and emphasis, the apostle, in his admonition, employs pleasing figures and makes an eloquent appeal. He introduces certain words, armor, work, sleep, awake, darkness, light, day, night, which are purely figurative, intended to convey other than a literal and native meaning. He has no reference here to the things they ordinarily stand for. The words are employed as similes to help us grasp the spiritual thought. The meaning is, Since for sake of temporal gain men rise from sleep, put aside the things of darkness, and take up the day's work when night has given place to morning, how much greater the necessity for us to awake from our spiritual sleep, to cast off the things of darkness, and enter upon the works of light, since our night has passed and our day breaks. Sleep here stands for the works of wickedness and unbelief, for sleep is properly incident to the night time, and then, too, the explanation is given in the added words, Let us cast off the works of darkness. Similarly, in thought of awakening and rising are suggested the works of faith and piety. Rising from sleep is naturally an event of the morning, Relative to the same conception are Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as do the rest, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, since we are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. 
For God appointed us not unto wrath, but unto the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Paul, of course, is here not enjoining against physical sleep. His contrasting figures of sleep and wakefulness are used as illustrations of spiritual lethargy and activity, the godly and the ungodly life. In short, his conception here of rising out of sleep is the same as that expressed in his declaration in Titus 2. For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to the intent that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That which is in the passage just quoted is called denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, is here in our text described as rising from sleep, and the sober righteous godly life is the waking and the putting on of the armor of light, while the appearing of grace is the day and the light, as we shall hear. Now note the analogy between natural and spiritual sleep. The sleeper sees nothing about him, he is not sensitive to any of the earth's realities, in the midst of them he lies as one dead, useless, as without power or purpose. Though having life in himself, he is practically dead to all outside. Moreover, his mind is occupied not with realities, but with dreams, wherein he beholds mere images, vain forms of the real. But he is foolish enough to think them true, but when he wakes, these illusions or dreams vanish. Then he begins to occupy himself with realities. Phantoms are discarded. So it is in the spiritual life. The ungodly individual sleeps. He is in a sense dead in the sight of God. He does not recognize, is not sensitive to, the real spiritual blessings extended him through the gospel. He regards them as valueless. But these blessings are only to be recognized by the believing heart. They are concealed from the natural man. The ungodly individual is occupied with temporal transitory things, such as luxury and honor, which are to eternal life and joy as dream images are to flesh and blood creatures. When the unbeliever awakes to faith, the transitory things of earth will pass from his contemplation, and their futility will appear. In relation to this subject, Psalm 76 reads, The stout-hearted are made a spoil, they have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. In Psalm 73, As a dream, when one awakens, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou wilt despise their image. Also Isaiah 29. And it shall be as when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. But it is not showing altogether too much contempt for worldly power, wealth, pleasure, and honor to compare them to dreams, to dream images. Who has courage to declare kings and princes, wealth, pleasure, and power, but creations of a dream in the face of the mad rage of earth after such things? The reason for such conduct is failure to rise from sleep and by faith behold the light. For now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. What do these words imply? Did we believe before, or have we now ceased to believe? Right here we must know that, as Paul in Romans 1 says, God through his prophets 
promised in the Holy Scriptures the gospel of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom all the world was to be saved. The word Abraham reads in Genesis 22, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The blessing here promised to the patriarch in his seed is simply the grace and salvation in Christ which the gospel presents to the whole world, as Paul declares in the fourth chapter of Romans and the fourth of Galatians. For Christ is the seed of Abraham, his own flesh and blood, and in Christ all believing inquirers will be blessed. This promise to the patriarch was later more minutely set forth and more widely circulated by the prophets. All of them wrote of the advent of Christ and his grace and gospel. As Peter in Acts 3 says, the divine promise was believed by the saints prior to the birth of Christ. Thus, through the coming Messiah, they were preserved and saved by faith. Christ himself in Luke 16 pictures the promise under the figure of Abraham's bosom, into which all saints from the time of Abraham to Christ's time were gathered. Thus is explained Paul's declaration, Now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. He means practically, the promise of God to Abraham is not a thing for future fulfillment, it is already fulfilled. Christ is come. The gospel has been revealed in the blessing distributed throughout the world. All that we waited for in the promise, believing, is here. The sentence has reference to the spiritual day Paul later speaks of, the rising light of the gospel, as we shall hear. But faith is not abolished in the fulfillment of the promise. Rather, it is established. As they of former time believed in the future fulfillment, we believe now in the completed fulfillment. Faith in the two instances is essentially the same, but one belief succeeds the other as fulfillment succeeds promise. For in both cases, faith is based on the seed of Abraham, that is, on Christ. In one instance, it precedes his advent, and in the other follows. He who would now, like the Jews, believe in a Christ yet to come, as if the promise were still unfulfilled, would be condemned. For he would make God a liar in holding that his word is unredeemed, contrary to fact. Were the promise not fulfilled, our salvation would still be far off we would have to wait its future accomplishment. Having mind faith under these two conditions, Paul asserts in Romans 1, In the gospel is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith. What is meant by the phrase, from faith unto faith? Simply that we must now believe not only in the promise, but in its past fulfillment. For though the faith of the fathers is one with our faith, they trusting in a Christ to come, and we in a Christ revealed, Yet the gospel leads from the former faith to the latter. It is now necessary to believe not only the promise, but also its fulfillment. Abraham and the ancients were not called upon to believe in accomplished fulfillment, though they had the same Christ with us. There is one faith, one spirit, one Christ, one community of saints, but they preceded while we come after Christ. Thus we, the fathers and ourselves, have had and still have a common faith in the one Christ, but under different conditions. Because of this common faith in the Messiah, we speak of their act of faith as our own, notwithstanding we were not alive in their day. And similarly, when they make mention of hearing, seeing, and believing Christ, the reference is to ourselves, in whose day they live not. David says in Psalm 8, When I consider thy heavens the work of thy hands, that is, the apostles, Yet David did not live to see their day. 
and Psalm 9. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou Most High. And there are many similar passages where one individual speaks in the person of another in the consequence of a common faith, whereby believers unite in Christ as one body. Paul's statement, Now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believe, cannot be understood to refer to nearness of possession. For the fathers had the same faith and the same Christ with us, and Christ was equally near to them. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yea, and forever. That is, Christ exists from the beginning of the world to all time, and through him and in him all are preserved. To him of strongest faith Christ is nearest, and from him who least believes is salvation farthest, so far as personal possession of it goes. Paul's reference here is to nearness of the revelation of salvation. When Christ came, the promise was fulfilled. The gospel was revealed to the world. Through Christ's coming, it was publicly preached to all men. In recognition of these things, the apostle says, salvation is nearer to us than when unrevealed and unfulfilled in the promise. In Titus 2 it is said, For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation. In other words, God's grace is revealed and publicly proclaimed, though the saints who lived prior to its manifestation nevertheless possessed it. So the scriptures teach the coming of Christ, notwithstanding that he was already present to the fathers. However, he was not publicly proclaimed to mankind until after his resurrection from the dead. It is of this coming in the gospel the scriptures, for the most part, teach. Incident to this revelation, he came in human form. The taking upon himself of humanity would have profited no one had it not meant the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel was to present him to the whole world, revealing the fact that he became a man for the sake of imparting the blessing to all who, accepting the gospel, should believe in him. Paul tells us in Romans 1 the gospel was promised of God, from which we may infer God placed more emphasis upon the gospel, the public revelation of Christ through the word, than upon his physical birth, his advent in human form. God's purpose was concerning the gospel and our faith, and he permitted his son to assume humanity for the sake of making possible the preaching of the gospel of Christ, that through the revealed word salvation in Christ might be brought near, might come to all the world. Some have presented four different forms of Christ's advent, adapted to the four Sundays in Advent, but the most vital form of his coming, that upon which all efficacy depends, the coming to which Paul here refers they have failed to recognize. They know not what constitutes the gospel, nor for that what purpose it was given. Despite their much talk about the advent of Christ, they thrust him from us farther than heaven is from earth. How can Christ profit us unless he be embraced by faith? But how can he be embraced by faith where the gospel is not preached? The night is far spent and the day is at hand. This is equivalent to saying salvation is near to us. By the word day, Paul means the gospel. The gospel is like day in that it enlightens the heart or soul. Now, day having broken, salvation is near to us. In other words, Christ and his grace promised to Abraham are now revealed. They are preached in all the world, enlightening mankind awakening us from sleep and making manifest the true eternal blessings, that we may occupy ourselves with the gospel of Christ and walk honorably in the day. 
By the word night we are to understand all doctrines apart from the gospel, for there is no other saving doctrine, all else is night and darkness. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. As Christ is the sun and the gospel is the day, so faith is the light or the seeing and watching on that day. We are not profited by the shining of the sun and the day it produces if our eyes fail to perceive its light. Similarly, though the gospel is revealed and proclaims Christ to the world, it enlightens none but those who receive it, who have risen from sleep through the agency of the light of faith. They who sleep are not affected by the sun and the day. They receive no light therefrom, and see as little as if there were neither sun nor day. It is to our day Paul refers when he says, Dear brethren, knowing the season, that already it is time for you to awake out of sleep, and so forth. Though the hour is one of spiritual opportunity, it has been revealed in secular time, and is daily being revealed. In the light of our spiritual knowledge, we are to rise from sleep and lay aside the works of darkness. Thus it is plain Paul is not addressing unbelievers. As before said, he is not here teaching the doctrine of faith, but its works and fruits. He tells the Romans they know the time is at hand, that the night is past and the day has broken. Let us walk becomingly, honestly, as in the day. Works of darkness are not wrought in the day. Fear of being shamed before men makes one conduct himself honorably. The proverbial expression, shameless night, is a true one. Works we are ashamed to perform in the day are wrought in the night. The day being shamefaced constrains us to walk honorably. A Christian should so live that he need never be ashamed of the character of his works, though they be revealed to all the world. He whose life and conduct are such as is to make him unwilling, his deeds should be manifest to everyone, certainly does not live in a Christian manner. In this connection Christ says, For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, and cometh not to the light, lest his works should be reproved. But he that doeth the truth cometh to the light, that his works may be made manifest, that they have been wrought in God. John chapter 3 not in reveling and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and jealousy. Here Paul enumerates certain works of darkness. In the beginning of the discourse he alludes to one as sleep. In First Thessalonians 5 it is written, Let us not sleep as do the rest, but let us watch and be sober. Not that the apostle warns against physical sleep. He means spiritual sleep, unbelief, productive of the works of darkness. Yet physical sleep may likewise be an evil work when indulged in from lusting and reveling through indolence and drunkenness to the obstruction of light and the weakening of the armor of light. These six words of darkness include all others, such as are enumerated in Galatians 5 and Colossians 3. We will divide them into two general classes, the right-hand class and the left-hand class. Upon the right are arrayed these four, reveling, drunkenness, chambering, and wantonness, on the left, strife and jealousy. Prescripturally, the left side signifies adversity and its attendant evils, wrath, jealousy, and so on. The right side stands for prosperity and its results, rioting, drunkenness, lust, indolence, and the like. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. In this admonition to put on Christ, Paul briefly prescribes all the armor of light. Christ is put on in two ways. First, we may clothe ourselves with his virtues. This is effected through the faith that relies on the fact that Christ, having in his death, accomplished all for us. 
For not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ reconciled us to God and redeemed us from sin. This manner of putting on Christ is treated of in the doctrine concerning faith. It gives Christ to us as a gift and a pledge. Relative to this topic, more will be said in the epistle for New Year's Day, Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. Secondly, Christ being our example and pattern whom we are to follow and copy, clothing ourselves in the various garment of his walk, Paul fittingly says we should put on Christ, as expressed in 1 Corinthians 15. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And again in Ephesians 4, that ye put away as concerning your former manner of life the old man, that grows corrupt after the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now in Christ we behold only the true armor of light. No gormandizing or drunkenness is here, nothing but fasting, moderation, and restraint of the flesh, incident to labor, exertion, preaching, praying, and doing good to mankind. No indolence, apathy, or unchastity exists, but true discipline, purity, vigilance, early rising. The fields are couched for him who has neither house, chamber, nor bed. With him is no wrath, strife, or envying, rather utter goodness, love, mercy, patience. Paul presents Christ the example in a few words where he says in Colossians 3, Put on, therefore, as God's elect, holy and beloved, a heart of compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving each other, if any man has a complaint against any, even as the Lord forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to the which also ye were called in one body, and be ye thankful. Again in Philippians 2, after commanding his flock to love and serve one another, he presents as an example the same Christ who became servant unto us. He says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man. Now, the armor of light is, briefly, the good works opposed to gluttony, drunkenness, licentiousness, to indolence, strife, and envying, such as fasting, watchfulness, prayer, labor, chastity, modesty, temperance, goodness, endurance of hunger and thirst, of cold and heat. Not to employ my own words, but let us hear Paul's enumeration of good works in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. But he makes a still more comprehensive count in 2 Corinthians 6. We entreat also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, At an acceptable time I hearkened unto thee, and in the day of salvation did I succor thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed, and now is the time to awake out of sleep, giving no occasion of stumbling in anything, that our ministration be not blamed, but in everything commending ourselves as ministers of Christ in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, 
in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, in pureness, in knowledge, in long-suffering, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in love unfeigned, and in the word of truth, in the power of God. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. What a rich stream of eloquence flows from Paul's lips. He makes plain enough in what consists the armor of light on the left hand and on the right to practice these good works as truly putting on Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Paul here briefly notices two different provisions for the flesh. One is supplying its natural wants, furnishing the body with food and raiment necessary to sustain life and vigor, guarding against enfeebling it and unfitting it for labor by too much restraint. The other provision is a sinful one, the gratification of the lusts and inordinate appetites. This Paul here forbids. It is conducive to works of darkness. The flesh must be restrained and made subservient to the spirit. It must not dismount its master, but carry him if necessary. Paul says of himself, I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, that is, subjection, 1 Corinthians 9. He does not say he brings his body to illness or death, but makes it serve in submission to the Spirit. This is enough on today's epistle lesson. Amen. This has been a presentation of classical Lutheran preaching from the sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Lenker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.